Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep our history alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Today, we're talking with Black Cat Cemetery Preservation, which specializes in historic gravestone and monument conservation and restoration in Canada. Husband and wife team Robin Lacey and Ian Petty have a combined 20 years of experience in the heritage sector as archaeologists, gravestone conservators, and cultural heritage technicians. They've worked across Canada and the United States, as well as on the Isle of Man, recording gravestones and cemeteries, conducting archaeological surveys, mapping sites, and evaluating heritage structures and landscapes. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Oh, it's it's a delight. So, Ian, this is your first time, and and Robin, welcome back because we did a we did a podcast with you several years ago. I think yeah. now you were working on your MA uh, project, and we talked about hex foils and all that fun stuff. I'm still, um, I'm still looking at those. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, listeners can go back and and get some background on that. Uh, and you've been living away and working, and you're both back. You and you got married. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations! This is the first time yeah. I really had a chance to uh, say that. Yeah. So, welcome back. And I know Robin, you're doing you're doing PhD work now, and Ian, you're starting up in September. Yeah. So I'll be starting my interdisciplinary PhD, uh, kind of revolving around the historical logging industry in uh in newfoundland um between about the late 19th century up till about 1950 or so so okay get going on that good well that's that's really interesting because we we're doing all this work with heritage nl around traditional skills and sawmilling is definitely something that comes up time and time again absolutely yeah that's going to be a massive part of it yeah (laughs) yeah we we did a we did a project last fall with um, Edwin Bishop. We did a podcast with him. He's a boat builder and snowshoe maker, and he ran a, he ran a sawmill for 30 years or something. So uh, you and I, have to, we'll have to have a, a conversation about logging and sawmilling uh, again oh, at some point. Look forward to it. <laughs> cool. So uh, tell me about Black Cat Cemetery Preservation. Who, who's, whose idea was it? It's <laughs> pointing at me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so when we were here for our master's in, what was that, 2015 to 17, mm-hmm. um, I got lots of questions because I was doing graveyard work um, about how to clean gravestones. And when Dale, you and I were in New Perlican um, doing that workshop a while ago as well, people were asking you questions about like yeah, how to clean them and how to like fix them and stuff. And we sort of realized that there aren't really anyone in the province, um, there isn't really anyone in the province that does that, that has a background in archaeology and a background in like stone conservation and heritage. So just really not that many people in North America in general, actually. Yeah, that as well. Um, yeah. We wanted to be able to sort of fill that um, and educate people if we can as well through workshops Mm -hmm. on um, safe ways to do gravestone cleaning and gravestone conservation um, and sort of get rid of those outdated ideas of like concrete and using bad soaps and things like that that happen quite a lot Um, which is understandable but we could stop it if possible (laughs) yeah I mean we we get calls a lot about uh historic cemeteries and and i think the reason why heritage nl gets called often is because there is a real there's kind of a gap in in who deals with historic cemeteries in the province the mm-hmm. the provincial archaeology office deals with archaeological sites and then you know um, graves that are still cemeteries that are still working are kind of the responsibility of the parish or the town but then there's kind of this gray area about cemeteries that 
are aren't really abandoned but they're very neglected and we see a lot of that kind of bad concrete repair work i think people are there's a lot of um a lot of interested amateurs who are uh, you know uh, want to help out as best they can and then they go online and get all kinds of information about <laughs> ways to do things oh, yes, yes. Yeah. so what's your what's one of your uh what's your horror story like what what do you hate to see when you when you see past work uh i mean a, a common one living in london for sure the uh the common tactic around there is well we can just slather the back of it with cement that'll hold it together or barring that hell we'll just throw the entire stone into cement which by the time you see it even five to ten years later is already cracked and disintegrating it's just a lot of cement. It's, just, yeah. it's never a good way to go with it. Once a cutting board. Yeah, once a cutting board. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I did work with Brick Street Cemetery, which has seen a lot of evolution um, of different conservation techniques. Um, so when I was working for them, I could tell them a little bit more um, about what people do now. But there was a really, really old repair um, where a stone had been sort of glued back together. And instead of like for a brace on the back of the stone, they had glued a plastic Ikea cutting board to it. And it's gone now, but you can see where the glue still is. Like someone has pried the cutting board off since, and it's like, it's still standing because it's concrete now. Um, but it's a little like shocking to hear that when the volunteers at the site were like, there was a cutting board on this gravestone. I'm like, oh no. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen all kinds of things and people drilling holes through marble headstones to bolt them to other things, you know? So yeah, a lot of, I think it's a lot of, um, there's a lot of room for education, which I'm excited That's that you cool. are, you two are now, uh, taking on that challenging task of, uh, of trying to spread the word. And I know you, you've had some really good uh, media coverage lately mm -hmm. about your, your new business and congratulations on oh, that. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, if, if I am working, you know, if I'm a, a parish member or a community member and I have a, I have a historic stone, like let's, let's start at the stone level first that, that needs some work. Uh, you know, what are, what are some of the do's and don'ts uh, just to start off? Maybe we'll start with, start with maybe just basic care and cleaning. Cause I know that that can lead to a whole number of issues as well. Um, yeah. So if you're just, wanting to clean a gravestone typically just water and a soft brush that's either natural fiber or like a plastic um, completely avoid metal brushes i know it seems really easy to scour moss off with a metal brush sometimes but that also takes off part of the stone um, so yeah just water just water and a soft brush um, if you want to get more complicated there are um safe cleaners like uh, the D2 biological solutions, which you have to order. I don't think anywhere in Newfoundland actually sells it, but that is a, one of the only safe cleaners that's uh, like pH neutral and won't do any damage to the stone. Um, as an issue, if you use soaps um, or other like typical household cleaners, they have salts in them and they have acids in them that actually sink into the porous parts of the stone, which like we don't think of often because stone seems like it's impermeable to everything, but they will sink in there and they will expand inside the stone itself and sort of crack off the face of it. So we really want to dissuade people from using anything beyond water uh, really to clean a gravestone. Mm -hmm. I mean, a light touch is going to be the best touch. Anything abrasive, I mean, in the moment, 
oh, it's really getting the moss off, the lichen. Oh, it looks so much better. But over time, that degradation does show up as a result, unfortunately. Exactly. So a light touch of the best. Yeah. And uh, can you can you uh, give us your thoughts on painting inscriptions? <laughs> um, not not super great. Um, anytime you put something over the surface of the stone, if it's concrete, if it's paint, what it does is traps moisture inside the stone itself, um, which otherwise would sort of seep outwards and leave. Um, and that creates moisture, higher moisture content than normal in the rock, and it allows it to weather even faster. So paint creates that barrier that makes it actually fall apart a little bit faster, especially if you're talking about softer stones like marble, uh, sandstone, and limestone. Um, contemporary gravestones that are granite that they paint in the letters, that's like, that's less of an issue, but also those aren't the ones being painted. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people paint inscriptions from, um, you know, a position where they want to make things legible and understandable. And, and as someone who is who is not a conservator, my advice is always to people is, you know, I, I say a lot, don't be at it. You know, don't 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 touch stuff if you don't know what you're doing. And and I think um I think one of the important roles for communities is about documentation and then making that information accessible. I mean, that's it's it's important to, to record that information and then have it in a place where people can access it so they don't feel like they have to go and paint uh, inscriptions if the information already exists um, somewhere else. I, I know, Robin, this is kind of one of your uh, your areas of expertise. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about the evolution of of uh gravestones in the province and 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 materials because we do have different types of materials that are kind of representative of different ages of of, mm -hmm. of cemeteries yeah so the earliest gravestones we see in the province um from the british sites which is what i was looking at um initially are from fairland and they are carved from locally sourced slate which is what most of the buildings at fairland are also made from it's the same outcrop um and we did prove that through scientific testing one of our cats just walked in with a bell so you might hear that um yeah. is that the black cat of black cat uh <laughs> We'll keep that in as a little sound yeah. bite then. Yeah. So um, slate slate is kind of the earliest you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And we did, we did prove that through um, PXRF analysis that it came from the same source, which is really cool to do. Um, so those are the earliest, not only the earliest British gravestones in Newfoundland, but they're at the moment, the earliest known British carved gravestones in North America as well. They were carved in the early 1600s, probably like 1620, late 1620s, 30s. Um, and then, it's very likely that people also marked graves with biodegradable materials like pieces of wood. And that's why we often don't see a lot of early, early grave markers. Um, they're just not there anymore. And that's pretty typical in most places that were settled. Um, just the use of field stones as well. If yeah. afford to have a gravestone carved mm -hmm. for them or a loved one. Which is pretty um, innocuous and might be removed. And then we won't know that those burials are there. Um, in the 19th century, we see stones being imported a lot more often. So we see um, limestone coming in from Devonshire in England and parts of Ireland. And we see uh, marble being imported, I believe, from the northeast of the United States. Um, and while the stones were often being imported, they were being carved here. Um, but there are also examples in the 18th century 
history of gravestones being carved in places like Massachusetts and being sent into Newfoundland, which is really interesting that they were going that far away to get uh, memorials carved. Yeah, there's an example of one of those. I uh, was carved in Massachusetts, but now currently resides at Fairland. So it's it's quite a little journey for me. Yeah. 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 It's a good reminder that we were uh, very well connected by water at, at one point. You know, there's that really, really important part of our history. Yeah. So we start to see I know we start to see the development of local carving industries around the 1840s uh, era and then on. And then when does when does marble start to kind of fade out as a as a building material? Um, I believe it's sort of went out of popularity around the turn of the century. So granite started being popular. I know on the mainland, the 18, Ontario was like 1880s and 90s. You start seeing granite a lot more often. So it's about the same in New England as yeah, well. Yeah, so around there. Um, and that was really advent of like machinery being used to sort of sandblast those letters. And it's so difficult to carve granite. Um, people obviously have been doing it for thousands of years, but it's like I tried to um, in Ontario repair a granite uh, marker with a like a masonry drill. And it was almost impossible to get the drill bit to even make a hole in the stone so you can see like why they were using softer materials to carve these monuments earlier on hmm. could, could you walk us through the process of if you had um, a, a complicated repair say you had um, a, a marble kind of tablet stone that had shifted and broken uh, what how would you start the the process is this a stone that has a key or not Ah, that's a, well, explain what that is to, to okay. people. Um, so a key is sort of the base. Early gravestones sometimes would be set into this, um, and I'm, I'm pantomiming here, but you won't be able to see me, um, into a rectangular base with like a slot in it. And that's called the key um, or base, depending on what terminology you want to use. And then it would be secured into that using a mortar. Um, so if the stone, well, this fictitious stone has a key, let's say. Um, so we would want to dig a hole Um and pack some very fine, probably limestone gravel into that hole and make a nice level foundation for it and set the key back, probably about half buried in the ground and then pack pea gravel around it as well. And this gives it a sort of a more level foundation than just being set into a hole in the ground, but also something that provides drainage around the stone and won't sink in the way that a concrete below ground foundation would. Um, and then you would take the piece of the if it's broken into several pieces, you take the bottom piece of the gravestone, you put some lime mortar, because we're not touching cement for this. Um, you put some lime mortar in the key and you get the little, you get the base set back in the key. Um, and then you would want to support it on all sides um, with some pieces of wood or something to give it, if it tries to lean while that mortar is setting, you don't want that to happen because then you'd have to chip the thing out again. Um, and that's one thing that's really good about working with lime mortar is it is reversible. You can get it out of that material much easier than if it was set into a cement base. I'm sorry about the pinnings or... Oh. <laughs> um, and then if it's broken in multiple pieces, if it's pretty clean breaks and the stone isn't like too big, you can just repair it with something like a stone epoxy that's like conservation used, um, something that is secure to use on stone, but also something that um, would be removable if possible. Um, a lot of the times epoxy isn't really removable, which is why we go for these like specific stone epoxies so that it has the lowest chance of failing. Um, but for sometimes more complicated breaks, um, we pin them 
which means drilling um, about an inch and a half or so on either side of the, st of the stone and measuring it all. So it actually lines back up. And I like to use a wooden uh, dowel piece um, because if you, metals can rust, but also if you use something like a fiberglass rod or a stainless steel um, piece, it provides the same support as the wooden dowel. But if that repair fails, and usually if a stone breaks after being repaired, it's because the repair failed, not because it broke somewhere else spontaneously. Um, the dowel is stronger than the stone if it's not made of wood. So it pops pieces of the stone out with it as it falls, whereas a wooden dowel provides that support, but also would break if the stone was to fail again. So we would put the wooden dowels in there and we would use some stone epoxy to secure it. Hmm. And and how long a process is that? Like how 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 long would it take to repair? Do a fairly complex repair on a on one stone. Um, it really depends on oh, <laughs> so many things. We were discussing this with someone yesterday a lot too. Of factors, yeah. um, depends on how tough the stone is to drill into. There was a pair of gravestones I was working on in Ontario that should have been super simple. They were marble. We kept literally killing the drill battery because for some reason that marble was so <laughs> tough to drill into, but typically it's a softer stone, a couple hours. Um, and you have to leave it to set in between each piece, which takes time. So if, if it's broken into like three pieces, you can only do one break at a time. Um, and that does draw it out. Hmm. So, you know, for potential clients who, who might hire your company to come and do some repair work, uh, it, it isn't like an, it isn't a, a come in in an hour and fix it and go. It is a bit of a lengthy process, depending on the, depending on the work. Definitely depending on the work. Yeah. A simple cleaning can be done. You can do multiple stones in an hour. Uh, and I mean, size, of course, would still factor into that, but overall just a cleaning, it's a spritz scrub and go uh and then kind of nature takes its course especially if you're using d2 uh where you want the sunlight to kind of bleach it out it makes the stone whiter it doesn't have bleach in it don't use bleach on gravestones <laughs> right. Right. Bleaching important important note out. yes uh, yeah, don't put bleach fantastic <laughs> uh, um, so just a up to an hour to maybe a few hours for an absolute larger stone or monument uh and then for the more complex breaks probably a few days on the top end. Uh, once again, depending on severity. And then if it's only a simple matter to repair, whether it's a few chips, a single crack, uh, then obviously that's going to go a lot quicker. But we do charge on a per stone basis. Uh, and when factoring in these things to a client contract, uh, we're, of course, willing to work with clients to uh, best suit their budgetary needs. Um, yeah. The yeah. most important thing is being able to preserve history. Like we need to eat, but we also want to make sure we can help people. Yeah. 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 Tell me, tell me about, I know you've done a little bit of work with the, the one of these new products for uh, kind of leveling and keeping stones, you know, from, from sinking, which is a, what is it called? A monogrid or something? Uh, grid yeah, force. grid force. Grid force. There's a couple different ones, but they're basically the same. <laughs> okay, so can you, uh, for for people who aren't familiar with that, can you kind of explain what that is and how it works? Yeah, it's been used in Europe apparently for quite a few years successfully for monuments um, mm -hmm. and other things like that. And what it does is it's these 
I'd say maybe like a two foot square piece of plastic that kind of looks like a honeycomb. Um, and typically they're made of recycled plastic, which is a good thing to know. Um, but what they do is they replace um, the traditional sort of giant blob of concrete that gets poured to make a flat base. And that's often what sinks or like what cracks and becomes not quite level mm-hmm. um, and causes a lot of problems. So what you can do is make this like packed pea gravel base that makes sure it's all level, like I was saying before. Um, and then below ground level, you put as many pieces of the monument grid as you need to like be all the way around and past the edges of the monument itself um, and make sure that's level. And that creates, and you put the piece back on gravel all over it. And there we go. Uh, but what that does is creates a level foundation that can sort of, if the ground shifts, it, it can move a little bit. And it also is much lighter. So it's not going to sink and pull itself down. And it also provides drainage. So it's not something that like concrete can get cracks in it from temperature mm-hmm. changes. This piece of permeable membrane isn't oh, yeah. going to do that. Yeah. Um, and there's really good success. I've even seen it used for driveways. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in- it was at Blackfriars Cemetery in uh, Greyfriars Kirkyard, <laughs> actually. There we go. Yeah, in, in, Edinburgh. Uh, in Edinburgh. It was used extensively for not only uh, monument leveling, but also kind of tourist driven uh, walkways as well, mm-hmm. just to kind of reduce the, uh, the stresses on the site. To what grave was that? There's a bunch of graves in. You remember? Uh, it was the headstone that J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, had based uh, Voldemort on. It was oh, in yeah, front of the, the, uh, the Tom, Tom Riddle grave. There yeah. we go. Oh, uh, okay. And people have walked to it so many times that all the grass and the sod is gone. So they've laid the stuff yeah. down to create like a safe level walkway that won't move yeah. um, for the number of people, us included, who were like, ah, it's Tom Riddle. <laughs> like, heritage tourism is fantastic, <laughs> but you also want to implement uh, ways to kind of mitigate the stresses mm-hmm. caused by just even repeated footsteps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know with, with heritage properties, we often talk about sacrificial surfaces, you know, so you'll, you'll have a surface that you put in place knowing that it's going to be worn down, uh, but, but, but it, uh, you know, keeps you away from the historic fabric. Uh, so, so of the work that, that you've done, do, do you have um, a favorite stone that you've done, done work on? Yes. Um, it was when I was working at Woodland Cemetery in London, Ontario. Um, my colleague and I were sort of um, looking for gravestones that had been sunken. We noticed these rows sort of stopped and it was in an older section. So we're like, there's probably a bunch of tablet stones that have fallen over here. Um, so we were very carefully checking the ground for anywhere that like weirdly wasn't squishy. Um, and she uncovered the stone. And as she was pulling it back, we were like, what? is carved on this gravestone it looks like a bomb it was like this oval shape with like a little handle on the side and we're like there is a bomb on this gravestone and basically stood there like trying to figure this out as we were taking the sod off and cleaning it for about 20 minutes and then when we uncovered the stone it said in memory of robert cooper who was killed accidentally in an explosion at a, by from like a soda water cylinder in 1873, I believe. So we looked into it in the archives. Um, that cemetery employs historians as well, which is amazing because it's an active cemetery. And then they have this historic section. Uh, so it's a really cool place to work. But we found newspaper articles about this accident because he was only a 17-year-old boy working in this factory. And this canister, which was brought to restaurants, they'd fill it up with the uh, material. What is it? 
It's essentially seltzer water, yeah. soda water, same thing. Yeah, so they would they would bring it to restaurants because it was huge, and they would use it to make like whatever people did in soda places in the 1870s. Um, and it had been repaired several times. And while they were carrying it, him and this other boy, one of the repairs failed, and it threw the other boy across the room. And I believe he said it was into root beer bottles, like very specific. It's <laughs> very specific, yeah. <laughs> but it threw Robert into the ceiling, and the force of that and the canister underneath him because it's filled with compressed gas at that yeah. point in order to make the seltzer yeah so it threw him into the ceiling and killed him instantly um and as a result of that because he was quite young there were a bunch of inquests into this there were a bunch of lawsuits um and they changed the laws about how many times in i don't know if it was just london or for all of ontario that you were allowed to repair these these cylinders um, and it was basically that, like, if it ruptures, you have to throw it out because these things are breaking and killing people. Um, and so that was like a little bit of good that came out of that accident. But also, it's just very bizarre that they carved the object that killed him. <laughs> yes, that is a bit strange. Yeah. <laughs> Not something that's super common. But no. Favorite, favorite one. And unfortunately, that one would have had a key, but we couldn't find it. And we didn't have enough time to make it a new one. Typically, we would make a new one out of concrete, but not cement it into the stone, make it separately, and then put the lime mortar in there. Um, we didn't have enough time to do that. And it had a pretty complicated break that was not in very good condition. So we didn't feel comfortable drilling into it. Um, so it's just laying on the ground on like a bed of um, gravel for drainage. Right. Fascinating. So if people want more information about the two of you, they want to hire you to come out and do all kinds of work in their cemeteries. How do they how do they track you down? Sure. So we've got a website, Black Cat Cemetery Preservation. Uh, if you Google it, we're going to be the first one that pops up. Better be. <laughs> certainly hope so. We also have an Instagram and a Facebook uh, on the website. There's our contact information, which includes our email. Uh, it's blackcatpreservation at gmail.com. Uh, I mean, whether it's requests for business or even just simple questions, feel free to reach out. We're happy to answer. Um, I'm also pretty yeah. easy to find on social media. It's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I have a separate website as well. So um, I'm sure Googling anything to do with us and graveyards should come up with something. <laughs> and so Robin's personal blog, uh, where she dives into burial history and anything death related, uh, it's going to be spade in the grave. Uh, once again, it's going to be one of the top results on Google there for you. Excellent. Well, I'm very excited that you guys are here now and that we have <laughs> experts that we can funnel uh, funnel questions towards. And, and you know, it's um, it was interesting last summer. We were in the middle of the COVID kind of lockdown and we found that there were a lot of um, community museums who were looking for projects for their students to do. And they mm -hmm. had to, because the museum maybe wasn't open and they needed something that was socially distant. And, and so there were a lot of summer students last year out doing work in cemeteries. So mm -hmm. that's a potential whole new generation of taffophiles who will, <laughs> uh, you know, be, uh, be interested in cemetery work, which well, I, I personally find very exciting. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting again at some point in the future. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. 
We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail, and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.